Hello, welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about science fiction or the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times, like today, we're spending time with authors of fascinating science books. Science journalist Ed Yong is the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden World Around Us. It's just out in paperback after being published last year. And it's the story of over a hundred different species from around the world and how they see, smell, hear, and even detect electricity or heat in ways we can't even begin to match. You meet beetles that fly hundreds of miles to the heat of distant forest fires, the fish that communicate with each other in pulses of electricity, and our best friends, dogs, who smell the world around them in the same way we scroll social media. All of these sensory modes give rise to what German scientist Jakob von Ickskill called the Umwelt, a world built by what the animal senses that only they, with their unique perspective, can inhabit. But it's also a thing we human beings, with our unique brains, can try to understand, which was exactly Yang's goal in writing the book. I really hoped that it would spark feelings of curiosity and empathy, that it would help people to see the other animals in the world in a new way, but also the world around them in a new way. And just judging by the feedback I've had, it it very much is doing that. You know, I've had really nice messages from readers saying that they're walking their dogs more slowly or they're pausing before they brush away a cobweb in the corner of their room to think about the spider that built it or they're, you know, watching the birds at their bird feeder in a new way. One really lovely message I got was from a dad whose son uh, was born with several sensory and learning disabilities, who said that he was thinking about how to be there for his kid in a new way after reading the book, because instead of trying to think about what he would experience given those constraints. He was now really focused on learning how his son experiences the world. So, you know, I, I, I want to be careful before drawing a conclusion, like a comparison between non-human animals and people with disabilities. But I think that the point still stands that empathy and curiosity are muscles that we can flex. And, you know, learning how to take the perspectives of lives that are very different from yours I think is a really important transferable skill that I hope the book helps to engender in people. So let's go back to the beginning, because this is a book about animal senses. But when we talk about senses, like you go way beyond what I think of as like the traditional five senses. How how many, you know, if you wanted to rattle off a list, how many do you think there actually are to consider? Well, I, I think it's really hard to put a number on it because, um, Firstly, in, in humans, there are more than five, right? So there are the internal senses we often don't think about. There's things like proprioception, which is how you know where your arms and legs are, even when you close your eyes. And then when you go to other animals, there are uh, these exotic senses that humans don't have. So songbirds can sense the magnetic field of the earth. Many electric fish and sharks and platypuses can sense the electric field that living things give off. Rattlesnakes can sense the infrared radiation given off by warm-blooded prey. These are all things that humans don't have. But other animals also meld the senses, the traditional senses, in weird and counterintuitive ways. So the antennae of ants and the suckers of octopuses likely meld taste and touch into a single sense, you know, that kind of blending of information in the way that synesthe- uh, people with synesthesia have. 
I think that's very common in the the animal world. And then there are some exotic sensors that that could be thought of as offshoots of the the standard five or not, depending on how you think about it. So, you know, I said rattlesnakes can sense infrared radiation. You know, they they are detecting body heat, which is not something that we can really do. But the organs that do that are feeding into the parts of the brain that process visual information. And mm. some scientists think of rattlesnakes as essentially seeing heat, that, that infrared might just be another color to them as, you know, red, green and blue are for us. So, you know, whether you want to think of that as another sense or a weird offshoot of vision, I think is very much up for debate. Yeah, that's really interesting because like the way the the pathway that the brain is using for processing the information may be the same as one we have, but they have a different sort of use for that pathway almost or addition to the pathway, I guess. Right. And so here's another good example. So bats famously use sonar to get around. So they, they echolocate. They produce these high frequency calls and listen out for the rebounding echoes and use those to navigate around the world to find how far they are away from insects or obstacles. That's kind of an advanced form of hearing, right? You're, you're, you're just listening out for sounds. But the fact that the bat is always making the sound changes things. It, it means that echolocation is always an active sense. It's always mm. exploratory. Like without the call, there is no echo for the bat to hear. And in that way, it's a little bit like touch, I think. It's very similar to the way we use our hands to reach out and explore and grasp and manipulate and feel the world. Bats are sort of doing that with sound, and, and dolphins are doing the same thing with sound too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I want um, to get onto kind of the central concept of your book, which is that you know we're not just talking about sort of the mechanics and the gee whiz of how an animal does things that we can't. We're also talking about sort of the world that is created for them as a result, this this concept called the umwelt. Maybe it's not something we think about as often, but it, it's it's actually very important. You know, um, why did you sort of land on this as, as sort of the organizing principle? You know, what the, what the world is like for animals as opposed to just, gee whiz, you know, uh, a bat does this very well. Because I think it's deeper and, and richer. Um, so often when we think about animal senses, a, a lot of the writing in this space is about animals doing things better than we do. You know, it's this, the, this shark is smelling X times better than we can smell, or, you know, this fox is much better hearing than we have. And we're sort of valuing animals only when they surpass our own abilities. But I think that's a, a slightly cheap way of, of thinking about their lives. And the, the Umwelt concept provides an alternative. So this was popularized in the early 20th century. And the word itself, Umwelt, means environment in German. But it was used in this special way to refer to an animal's sensory environment. So not the physical things around it that it can touch and interact with, but the information that it has access to. So the sights and sounds and smells and textures that it can perceive but that another individual or another animal might not be able to. And that, I think, is a beautiful concept because it tells us that despite the fact that we have this very powerful illusion of perceiving all there is to perceive, that really is an illusion. Um, you know, our perception of the world is woefully incomplete. 
And that's a limitation that we share with all other creatures. Um, you know, we are great in some ways, but weak in others. And you could argue the same is true for any species around us. There's a point where you're talking about vision, where you're talking about, for example, a, a vulture can see, you know, downward with incredible clarity while it's moving very quickly, but it cannot see ahead of itself, for example. And this is why they so often tangle with wind turbines. And that's not like a it's dumb sort of thing. It's just like it's got this blind spot that it's never needed access to before there were wind turbines. Absolutely. You know, at, at no point before people created these giant machines would a vulture ever have needed to look at something directly in front of its head while it was soaring up in the sky. And, you know, evolution tailors the senses according to the owner's needs. But your vision is a great example here because humans have very good vision. I mean, I don't. I wear ridiculous contact <laughs> lenses. But but theoretically, as a species, we have very sharp eyes and you know sharper than anything except vultures and other birds of prey. But sharp vision comes at a cost. Um, you can either have an eye that is very, very sharp, that has high resolution, or you can have an eye that does really well in the dark and is very sensitive. And for just simple physical reasons, you cannot have both of those things at once. So this is a great example, I think, of how there are always trade-offs in vision. You know, some, some animals can see colors in pitch blackness. Other animals can spot a rabbit from a mile overhead. But mm -hmm. you can't have both of those things at the same time. And I think that's a great example of, of what we were talking about, that um, the senses always constrain us, even as they expand our possibilities. Well, and, and staying on vision for a moment and color, actually, if we're talking about an umwelt that we cannot perceive, one of the ones that really, I don't know, struck my imagination in, in a really wonderful way is something that I think we talk about in very simple terms a lot, like bees can see ultraviolet, we cannot. But it's not, as you write, something as simple as like, oh, there's a glowing outline of, of ultraviolet around this flower. It is a whole range of, you know, visual frequencies, much like any other shade of color. I mean, how how can we even approximate understanding what that's like? Yeah, I think um, with great difficulty, if you can see ultraviolet, then there are patterns in the natural world that become obvious that we normally don't see. So a lot of flowers that we think of as being um, single color actually have very vivid patterns on them. They have bullseyes and landing strips and other things that draw the attention of pollinating insects, which almost always can see ultraviolet. But you're right that ultraviolet is a range of different colors. And you know there are, diff there are many different shades, just as we recognize different shades of blue or green. And they will combine with the colors that we see to create even more uh, combinations of colors that we can't perceive or imagine or even name. You know, the kind of ultraviolet version of, of purple, which is a mix of red and blue. It, this gets even more complicated when you think about birds, because mm. humans and bees both have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes. They are sensitive to different kinds of colors, so bees can see ultraviolet, but there's still three at core. So you can sort of recolor what the human world looks like to imagine what a bee might see. But you can't do that for a bird because birds have four kinds of color sensing cells. 
which means that they sense an entire dimension of colors that we don't have access to, you know, a hundred times more hues than we could discriminate or, or give name to. Huh. And that is actually almost impossible to imagine, I think. Like, you, you can't recolor the world to what it might look like to a hummingbird or to a crow because of that, because four and three just doesn't go, right? And yeah. And so I think that means that there is always going to be something about a bird's eye view of the world that is fundamentally unimaginable to us. And I find that kind of cool. So when people say, let's get a bird's eye view of this, that's actually impossible. <laughs> right, right. And and I think this is an, an example of how our language is a bit limited too. You know, when we say a bird's eye view, really all we're talking about is a view from a high perch, right? So it's the same thing that we see, but from above. But birds often have eyes on the sides of their heads. So they will see a panoramic wraparound view of the world that, again, is very difficult for us with our forward-facing eyes to imagine. They will see this extra dimension of colors. So, you know, the world will be bursting with color information that we can't perceive. You know, just just in terms of vision and just in terms of um, birds, like some of the animals that we're most familiar with, the world around us looks utterly, utterly different. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, what about a, a different sensory landscape? And I'm thinking now about sound and sticking with birds. I mean, I think about birds with very good hearing and I think about owls. But what is that landscape then of hearing very well? like for a bird, like an owl? So owls have incredible hearing, as you've said, and they also have very precise hearing. So I can more or less tell whether a sound is coming from my left or my right, because my brain can compare the timing at which sounds arrive at each of my ears. Owls can also do that in the vertical plane, because their ears are offset. So if you imagine a clock face, an owl's ears are like at two and eight o'clock. Like a skew. <laughs> right, they're skewed, yeah. yeah. Okay. They're, they're asymmetric. And, and that means that they can very, very finely pinpoint exactly where, is a sound, or where a sound is coming from. And you can see this in their behavior. So a great gray owl can pounce on a lemming that's running inside a snow-covered tunnel because it can hear exactly where the footsteps are coming from, even though it absolutely cannot see the animal in question. You know, that, that I think is 
incredible because those are noises that we probably cannot hear. They're, they're too faint. But what the thing I find most amazing about bird hearing is that even in the sounds that we can hear, we're still missing a lot of what they're getting. And bird song is a great example of this. You know, I, I've started birding recently, um, and Enjoy it's really <laughs> right. Uh, it is delightful to learn the songs of the local birds. But you know, every now and then you'll see you'll hear a species that really it, it really sounds like there's so much more going on there than what my ears can detect, and. In many cases, that's because th there is. Um, birds have hearing that operates at a much faster time scale. So they can hear these tiny, tiny, very rapid changes in both pitch and volume that our ears simply aren't fast enough to detect. And those changes are really, really meaningful to birds, sometimes more so than the the things, the syllables or the notes that we think of when we try and, you know, duplicate birdsong. So, you know, I, I think birds are hearing stuff in their own songs that we're not hearing. They are encoding and detecting meaning in parts of their songs that we can't pick up. And they're sometimes ignoring the parts of the songs that we think are meaningful to our ears. Is that like the old jazz sort of cliche where it's about the space between the notes sometimes more than the notes themselves? Like, is that <laughs> at all comparable? I, I I guess a little bit, but I, I, I sort of see it as like the shape of a note. You know, we, we might think of a note as a single entity, but if you, you know, it's like if you look at the spectrogram of a note, the way its frequency changes over time, and you really zoom in, what to us might look like like what you would expect a child to draw a mountain like, right? Like just a, a triangle actually is more like a city skyline. You know, it's going to be jagged and bumpy. And those tiny variations are things that a lot of songbirds are picking up on. I want to go back to something that I, I kind of maybe erroneously kind of dismissed as kind of umwelt 101, but dogs and their and their noses. You know, these are animals that we live alongside and many of us may feel like we understand them. But you write in great detail about sort of the sensory or the scent uh, landscape that dogs live in that we may not actually, as dog owners or dog appreciators, fully understand as much as we want to. What What is going on in the nose of a dog? Yeah, so... Um... The anatomy of the nose is really specialized, and it's really specialized to give dogs an almost continuous olfactory sense of their world. So when I inhale, there's a single stream of air that goes down into my lungs and passes smell receptors in my nose along the way. And then when I exhale, all of that good scented air is washed out, and then the cycle begins again. With dogs, it's a little different. They have structures in the nose that split that airstream in two. And one small slice goes into a part of the nose that is dedicated for smell and doesn't get washed out on the exhale. So it, it's always got this sort of reservoir of smelly stuff inside its head for it to process. And then its nostrils also add to that effect. So if you look at a dog, you'll see that the nostrils curve round to the side. So there are these side slits. That means that when the dog is sniffing along the ground and exhaling, rather than pushing scents on the ground away, uh. it's actually creating these rotating vortices that sweep those molecules up into its nose. 
So a dog is kind of effectively inhaling even on the exhale. And that means that its, its sense of smell is continuous. Like mine is very flickering. You know, if I tried to do what a dog does and follow a trail along the ground, and I've tried this in experiment. Like, firstly, I start hyperventilating. Yeah. Um, but also, I lose. I lose it. You know, it. My that perception is very flickering. It's like uh, looking at a crowd through a strobe. But for a dog, I think it's smooth and continuous. And not only do dogs have this incredibly sensitive sense of smell, which we're kind of used to, right? We know dogs can smell drugs and explosives, and they can do all these like cool party tricks that they've been trained to do. I think smell also gives dogs a very different perception of the landscape around them in a way that vision doesn't really, because smells can linger. Smells can give clues about the past. Vision is a very instantaneous sense. Smell is not. Smell is also historical. So if a, if a dog is sniffing a patch of pee on a sidewalk that another dog has left behind, you know, it is basically smelling into the past and it's it's learning who walked past this point before it learns stuff about their identity maybe their age maybe their health their diet it's getting tons of information here and i've when i walk my dog now and he sniffs like patches of pee that other dogs have left behind i i kind of think of it like me looking at my instagram feed right? or, or my twitter feed right it's it's social media it's my dog is enjoying the process of of working out what the other dogs in the neighborhood are doing where they've been what they've been up to you know smells also travel far ahead of their owners mm-hmm. so when we come home our dog is always there at the door greeting us. And I think that's partly because the smells that we release are, you know, preceding, are preceding our arrival. I want to talk about at least one sensor or umwelt that is like involves systems that we do not have as people. And I feel like I had the most kind of holy crap moments when you were writing about electrical sensing, which you said that one in six vertebrate animals can do. And it's very likely like we have an ancestor, you know, back in the fish family that could do this too. Like we're descended from electrosensing animals. How does that work? <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> it works certainly very well in the water um, because all living things in the water produce very weak electric fields. And a lot of animals have the ability to sense those fields. Um, so sharks can famously do it. Catfish can do it. Platypuses can do it. And a lot of electric fish can do it too. So, you know, the basic version of the skill is, can you detect the electric fields that other living things are naturally giving off? And this is a very good way of finding your prey because it is very hard to stop yourself from producing those fields, maybe impossible. So if you can detect them, it's a very surefire way of finding things that might be hidden from other senses. But then some animals have taken this to another extreme where they, much like bats producing sounds that they then listen for, there are electric fish that produce their own electric fields and that navigate by sensing how those fields are distorted by objects around them, whether it's conducting objects like plants or insulating objects like rocks. The electric eel is the most famous example of this, but there are a lot of electric fish that don't produce 
dangerous or fatal amount of electricity. They, they are much weaker, but they still do this incredible thing where they're using electricity to sense the world around them. Some of them can also communicate using electricity. So they'll make these electric pulses that they use to sense their environment, but that they also use to exchange messages with other electric fish. And there are parts of the world um, in the Amazon, in many rivers in Africa, where you know you can drop an electrode into the water and suddenly discover that there is this incredible electric chorus of tons of electric fish chatting to each other in a way that no human could possibly hear unless you had the right tech. The thing that really blows my mind about the electric fish is, is this. You know, I said that they use electric pulses to navigate and to communicate. And it's the same pulses that are used for both of these purposes, which means that for these fish, communication and perception are really starting to blur with each other. You know, there'll be cases where a fish that loses a fight with another, with a rival, acts submissively by turning off its electric field. You know, it's like waving a white flag by, by going silent. But of course, doing that also robs it of its its main perceptual ability. You know, it means that uh, the fish can no longer sense a lot of things in its surroundings that it could previously sense. And I think that that blurring of perception and communication is unusual for these animals and, and also quite hard to imagine. You also, I, I think this could have been less startling to me, but you don't need water to detect electric signals either. And, you know, going back to things bees know that that we don't, they also seem to detect the electrical fields of flowers, which flowers have electrical fields at all is sort of a new fact for me. Right. I, I think it's very shocking to me too. Um, but around the world, there are tens of thousands of lightning storms going off, going on at any time. And all of this creates a planetary electric field, a change in voltage between the ground and the sky. And because plants are electrically grounded and because they grow into that field, they themselves um, distort it. They have an electric field around themselves that are, whose shape depends on the shape of the flower, whose intensity depends on different characteristics of the plant. And bees can detect this. Bees have small hairs on their bodies that bend and deflect uh, when they encounter electric fields. It's like, you know, if you rubbed a balloon and then you put it over your hair, over your arm, the little hairs will move. Same thing is happening with bees when they encounter flowers. And I think that's incredible because this was only discovered a few years ago, just shortly before the pandemic happened. And I think it's likely to be very common among insects. A lot of insects have these small sensory hairs, and it's likely that they are also tuning in to the electric world of the plants around them in ways that we can't, we've only really begun to imagine. You know, when a bee visits a flower, it's going to change the electric field on that flower. So, oh, yeah. Right. So by sensing the electric field of a flower, a bee might be able to tell if one particular bloom has recently been visited by another bee and might be low on nectar. So that's one possibility. Then you could ask, like, wait, can flowers lie to bees? 
using electric fields? Like, they can they switch off or have ways of like regenerating their field very quickly to send different messages about how much nectar they have? You know, I think that these are the kinds of questions that this discovery raises, and it, it sort of hints at this entire sensory landscape that exists in the most familiar settings. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my backyard right now and there are tons of flowers and I can see bees pollinating them right now. What are they sensing? Ultraviolet is part of that, but electric fields are part of that. And what, what else are we missing? What the bees do, I think, is that they recast something really familiar to us in a new way. And that's really what I wanted the book to, to do. You know, I look at the gardens and the parks that I love spending time in in a very different way now that I know the kinds of information that flowers and plants might carry. And it's one of my favorite examples because I, I think it, it highlights another really important theme in the book, which is that the senses are not merely passive receptacles for information in the world, but they actively shape and construct that world. So think about the colors of flowers. Clearly, those colors are meant to attract pollinating animals, mostly insects. And you can actually take all the colors of all the flowers in the world and ask what kinds of eyes would be best at telling apart these colors. And some researchers have done this. And what they've come up with is that the ideal eye for seeing flowers is basically the eye of a bee. Three kinds of color sensing cells, most sensitive to blue, green, ultraviolet, that gives you the maximal ability to tell the difference between all the hues on the blooms around us. And so you might think, oh, well, so bees have evolved eyes that are really good at sensing flower colors. And actually, that's completely the wrong way around, because bees and their ancestors, their eyes came first, and then flowers evolved later. So flowers have evolved colors that ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And that's just beautiful to me. That means that simply by existing and observing the world, bees have painted the flowers that they then visit. And it means that beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder, but it exists because of that eye. You know, so the, the senses very much influence the form that beauty takes in the natural world. I don't want to let us go without also talking about peril, because even where wherever there is wonder, there is often peril as well. And, you know, you write about the way that we are flooding so many animals, Umwelten, with light and sound, and I am sure also electricity and vibration and all of the other things that they are trying to sort of make sense of. You know, how bad is it, I guess? And and how do you want us to think about the power we have over the sensory worlds of other creatures? Yeah, it, it's pretty bad. So humans pump light into dark spaces and sound into quiet spaces. And we don't think of light and sound as pollutants. They don't have the same visceral, disgusting reflex that plastic in the ocean or that chemicals billowing from a smokestack might have, but they really are pollutants. They can harm the creatures around us. So light at night can take hatchling sea turtles away from the ocean up a beach where they get hit by cars or where they die from starvation. 
light at night can distract pollinating insects away from the flowers they're meant to visit. Sound in quiet spaces can put off animals that might otherwise thrive there, can drown out the alarm calls and mating songs that animals need to hear. By making the world a brighter, louder place, we have made it a less conducive world for many of the creatures around us. And I think this is another example of how our tendency to focus on our own umbelt and forget that other creatures live in a very different sensory world can harm them. So we talked about how this is true for dog owners who yank their dogs away from smelly opportunities. Light and sound pollution are a much more extreme and I would argue important version of that failure, the failure to to think about what other animals are experiencing and to tailor our world accordingly. Now, we can do better at this, and I think that it does behoove us to be better custodians of the world, not just in the obvious ways, but in the subtler ways that are nonetheless very important and impactful. And I think there are sort of selfish reasons to do so too. I've called sensory pollution the sense the pollution of disconnection because it severs other animals from the information that they need to survive, but it also severs us from the natural world. It means that at night, most people in Europe and North America don't see the stars, can't see the Milky Way. It means that Many of us have really never experienced like genuine, true quiet and just the profound beauty of that. It means that many of us can't hear the animals that are right on our doorstep. You know, there was a reason why in the early pandemic, a lot of people suddenly started hearing birds for the first time. It's not because birds were flocking to these areas that humans weren't in anymore. It's that the birds were always there. You just couldn't hear them. And I think there's a there's a sort of deeper loss there by severing ourselves from the nature that is all around us all the time, it makes nature feel more distant, more remote, less connected to our daily lives, and therefore less worth knowing about and protecting. And I think that's a, that's a huge cost at a time when nature absolutely requires our best and most concerted efforts to cherish and to protect. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Christy Taylor. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, there's our weekly news podcast and the incredible Dead Planet Society, all dropping right here like clockwork. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.